Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, political policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the odd man. Welcome. civilized world, particularly the Western world, diversity abounds. We see this diversity in our socioeconomic, cultural, and ethnic differences. But hidden beneath the surface, away from the eyes of the casual observer and the merely curious, is another society altogether. A society of secrets, to coin their own phrase. This is the largely invisible world of Freemasonry. We'll be speaking with former Masons and reviewing actual Masonic literature to try to gain an objective view of this hidden fraternal order. It's essential to begin with an understanding of what Freemasonry is. Freemasonry defines itself as being a system of morality. The basis of Freemasonry, which all Masons go through, is the Blue Lodge. The Blue Lodge being the first three degrees or levels of Freemasonry. Entered Apprentice, the first degree, Fellowcraft, the second degree, and Master Mason, the third degree. Most Masons never go beyond third degree. Although, if one chooses to go beyond the Blue Lodge, there are two routes that can be taken. One is the York Rite, and one is the Scottish Rite. Most Masons who decide to go past the Blue Lodge enter the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. The Scottish Rite has 32 degrees. The 32nd can lead one into the Shriners, if one so chooses. The 33rd degree, which does exist, is largely honorary. Author Ian Taylor has extensively researched the origins of modern Freemasonry. To many people, the very word Freemasonry evokes a sense of mystery, secret society, and so on. But in order to find out what they're all about, we need to know a little history. There were many humanist thinkers back in the 1500s who saw the corruption that there was in the church of the day, and they concluded that in order to get rid of that corruption, there would have to be a new world order. They had read Plato's Republic. Plato's Republic in the 1500s was now a popular work, and Plato too was a Greek philosopher living in the 5th century BC, and he too was totally fed up with the corruption that there was in government. He said, um, if we could have a group of wise men who were well paid to rule over the people, then there would be no corruption. It's a nice thought, but a rather naive one. 
we've seen such governments today and they are totally corrupt. But nevertheless, there are still people today, many people, who think that it is a good idea. This then was the agenda for the humanist thinkers back in the 1500s. But in order to do that, they had to first destroy the existing world order. The existing world order based upon the rules of God through the king and through the church. But to even suggest this would have been seen to be heresy in its day and they would have lost their heads quite literally. And so they had to go into a secret society. Now the Freemasons in that day, these were craft masons. These were the men who actually built the cathedrals of the day. They were highly skilled men. Uh, and it was like an early trade union. And they wanted to keep the, the secrets of their skills to themselves. Good reasons for that. And so um, the, the humanist thinkers infiltrated into the craft masonic lodges. And they then became the speculative masons. They were called speculative masons by the craft masons because they wouldn't have known a square from a compass. They were just the, the humanists, the, um, the idealists, the academics. And so there are within the masonic lodges today two types of mason. The craft mason, who is the genuine mason and cut stone and so on. And then there is the speculative mason and he's the humanist thinker. He's the person whose um, purpose is to rebuild a new world order. What's happening gang? Back again for another oddcast and I want to thank you once again for joining me. It means so much to me because you guys could be listening to any other show or doing all kinds of other things but instead you're hanging out with me. We're learning together. We're kind of trying to understand a lot of these hidden things from history and you know, I frankly love this stuff, and I'm sure that you guys do as well because you're listening. So, thank you once again. So, I hope you really liked the last few episodes. I've been trying extra hard to put more details in. This is going to be part two on Freemasonry, and I'm calling this one, Have You No Mercy for the Widow's Son? And if you'll remember... In the last episode about Freemasonry, called Are You a Traveling Man, we learned that the widow's son, or the widow's sons, are the Freemasons. And where they got that from was two of their legends. One being that the widow's son was Horus when Osiris was killed by his brother Set, or some say in some legends killed by his brother Typhon. Then Isis was a widow. Then two, the Rosicrucian angle is that the widow was Eve when the Lucifer spirits through the demon or fallen angel Samael came into the garden to impregnate Eve and she bore Cain. And when the spirit, the uh, Lucifer spirits and the angel had to leave, she was a widow. I know it's kind of strange and weird, but then... Obviously, the widow's son represented Cain, and they really looked to Cain as one of their heroes in Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism and other occult beliefs. And if you look and think about this, another of their heroes is Nimrod, which was known to be an enemy of the Christian God. And also, they look to Solomon, and they hold him in as high regard as possible, I would think, um, and really... If you look in the Bible, in the biblical text of the stories of Solomon, Solomon was obedient to God, and God looked on him with great favor, and he was seen as a very intelligent man. But he fell from God, 
and got into all these different occult beliefs and had this harem of ladies who were into these occult beliefs. And really, he had a long fall. He destroyed his life. And so I think that's peculiar. You have to take that into account that several of these heroes in Freemasonry are indeed enemies of the Christian God or someone who turned his back on the Christian God. So I just have to point that out because that's pretty obvious. And we may get into more of that later. But another thing I wanted to talk about was the Leo Taxel, the author Leo Taxel, who was said to have faked one of the most famous Albert Pike quotes, as well his, I believe, his views on three world wars. And I always suspected that the three world wars story was not true. However, a lot of the things that happened in it, or a lot of the things that it foretold did come true, but I don't believe that that came from Pike, just from everything that I've studied. Now, I used to think so before I really got into looking more deeply into things, and now I'm just, you know, I'm not 100% convinced it wasn't him, but I'm definitely leaning towards the fact that it was not him. And so I thought that I would talk just a little bit more about that and make things a little bit more clear. So this is a Masonic source, and you can say, well, since it come from the Masons, then they're just trying to cover their tracks. But certain things I've read in the past that they say is in Albert Pike's Morals and Dogma is not in there. Now, anyone can go on Amazon Kindle and download Morals and Dogma for free, and then you can go in there and do a search of the book, and it'll pull up whatever word or phrase that's in the book. Now, let's look at this Leo Taxel character and the one who was supposedly the author of these quotes and stories that were attributed to Albert Pike. Now, this is from a Masonic source. It's going to be in the show notes. It's from MasonicInfo.com, Leo Taxel. It was a practical joke which has gone to have a life of its own. Gabriel Yoglan Peja better known as Leo Taxel, was born in France in 1854 and educated by the Jesuits, who caused him to be embittered towards religion. Taxel became a free thinker and actually joined Masonry, but was expelled because of wrongdoing. Further angered, he chose revenge in a literary sense and decided, perhaps in an effort to redeem himself with Masonry by making the Roman Catholic Church look foolish to ridicule their credulity about Freemasonry by creating an elaborate story in which the leader of the southern U.S. Scottish Rite, Albert Pike, was the brunt of the fabrication. I don't know, that sounds kind of weird if he's wanting to get back with Freemasonry to make up a bunch of stories about the main man in Freemasonry, but we'll go with it and we'll see what we think here. This hoax supposedly revealed a highly secretive Masonic order called the Palladium, which existed in Taxel's imagination only. Taxel claimed that the Palladium practiced murder, devil worship, and more. In his book, Taxel used Levi's Baphomet to describe in more detail here, then you have to push the link, of course, and to this day, anti-Masons often make the charge that Masons worship a god called Baphomet or Satan. Well, we know that Baphomet is a big freaking deal in the occult. 
and it represents the male sex and the female sex and all kinds of other things. But, um, you know, there's, I've never seen any proof that the Templars had Baphomet as one of their mascots or whatever you want to call it, logos. I don't know. That's kind of one of those things that has come about through history, one of those legends, and I don't know if there's any accuracy to that. When someone makes their charge, it's often quite easy to find the source of their Luciferian conspiracy. It begins on July 14, 1889. Albert Pike, sovereign pontiff of the Universal Freemasonry, addressed to the 23 Supreme Confederated Councils of the World the following instructions, and thus begins with the infamous hoax. In 1897, Taxel publicly confessed to the hoax, just as he was being acclaimed all over Europe for his religious zeal. The infamous Taxel quote, supposedly from Albert Pike, and here it is. Okay, you've probably, if you're into Freemasonry, like looking into it, if you're a Freemason or just enjoy looking into it, then you're familiar with this quote. That which we must say to the crowd is, we worship a God. But it is the God that one adores without superstition. To you, Sovereign Grant Inspectors General, we say that this, that you may repeat it to the brethren of the 32nd, 31st, and 30th degrees. The Masonic religion should be by all of us initiates of the high degrees maintained in the purity of the Luciferian doctrine. If Lucifer were not God, would Adonai, whose deeds prove his cruelty and hatred of man, barbarism and repulsion for science, would Adonai and his priests illuminate him? Yes, Lucifer is God, and unfortunately, Adonai is also God. For the eternal law is that there is no light without shade, no beauty without ugliness, no white without black. For the absolute can only exist as two gods, darkness being necessary to the statue and the break to the locomotive. Thus, the doctrine of Satanism is a heresy, and the true God and pure philosophical religion is the belief in Lucifer, the equal of Adonai. But Lucifer, God of light and God of good, is struggling for humanity against Adonai, the God of darkness and evil. Now, they say that that was taken out of Taxel's book, and I cannot even pronounce the damn book, okay? It's in French, and I don't want to just totally destroy it, so I'm putting it in my show notes and you guys can check it out. And I watched several videos on this same thing. It seemed to confirm what this says. And look, I'm not saying that Albert Pike didn't believe those things. You know, when we looked at uh, Freemasonry and Catholicism and some of the other books, it seems to confirm that that belief is true. But, you know, that I want to get to the heart of the truth. And if it pains me to do so, if it doesn't confirm what I wanted it to, then that's beside the point because, firstly, I'm a poor man's historian and I want to know the truth so I can prepare for it. I don't want to believe a lie. So that's why I wanted to get to the bottom of this and to bring it to your guys' attention. So they go on to say, when Taxel admitted his hoax in 1897, De La Rive wrote, With frightening cynicism, the miserable person we shall not name here, Taxel, declared before an assembly especially convened for him that for twelve years he had prepared and carried out to the end the most sacrilegious of hoaxes. We have always been careful to publish special articles concerning 
Paladism, and Diana Vaughn. We are now giving in this issue a complete list of these articles which can now be considered as not having existed. Published in April 1897, the issue of Freemasonry Disclosed. For over a hundred years, writers in anti-Masonic books and websites have repeated all or parts of that quotation without checking into its authenticity or knowing it will be false, and they repeat it regardless in their zeal to defame Freemasonry. Of course, I have been guilty of that myself. To this day, it shadows the name of Pike, who, according to Masonic author Jim Tresner and others, was a sincere and devout Trinitarian Christian until his death. You know, I've seen pictures. Uh, there's one famous picture of him, and it looks as if he has the Trinitarian cross around his neck, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. So, I was wondering if I could find anything from a Christian perspective about Leo Taxel, and I was able to find on the newadvent.org, that's the Catholic Encyclopedia online, they say here, of a different type is the most notorious imposter of modern times, that of Leo Taxel and his character Diana Vaughn. Leo Taxel, whose true name was G. Jogan Pajah, or something like that, had long, been, had long been known as one of the most blasphemous and obscene of the anti-clerical writers in France. He had been repeatedly sentenced to fines and imprisonment for the filthy and libelous works he published. For example, on account of his atrocious book, Les Amours de Pie, he was sentenced to pay 60,000 francs at the suit of the Pope's nephew. He had also founded the Anti-Clerical, which was a journal which fanatically attacked all revelation in religion. In 1885, it was announced that Leo Taxel had been converted, and he soon proceeded to publish a series of pretend exposures of the practice of Freemasonry, and particularly of the Satanism or devil worship with which he declared it was intimately bound up. Amongst other attractions, he introduced a certain Diana Vaughn, the heroine of Paladism, who was destined to be the spouse of the demon Asmodeus, but clung to virtue and was constantly visited by angels and devils. This guy had quite the imagination. If he was around today, he would be writing movie scripts for Hollywood. There's no question about it. It goes on to say various other writers like Beta Ilay, Margiati, Hacks, etc., exploited the same ideas and became, in measure, Taxel's confederates. In 1897, the imposter was finally shown up, and Taxel cynically admitted that Diana Vaughn was only the name of his typist. Then it says, see Portelet Le Fin d'une Mystification, Paris 1897, and H. Gruber, Leo Taxel's Paladismus Roman, and other works. And then it goes on to mention Blavatsky and Annie Besant and some other people who were kind of in his realm of thinking. So anyway, we won't go into that, but I, like I said, I'll put that in my notes and you can check that out. I was looking online to see if I could find any of Taxel's books that we might read some excerpts from, but I couldn't find any that were that was translated in English. They're all French and I believe German. So I did find one online for sale on 
Amazon. And let's see if I can find it here. Okay, it's under Leo Taxel, The Amusing Bible. And underneath it, it says Voltaire, Lord Bolingbroke, Ferret, and Toland. And you can kind of guess how it goes by those authors. But it has on the cover a picture of, I guess it's supposed to be God all bloodied up with a dove or chicken on his head. And it's got, he's got a ball bat with spikes and a gun in his belt. Of course, this is a modern cover that someone's done. Beside him is the devil in all gray with his arm around God. They both got their arms around each other. And there's an apple with a bite out of it on one side and a snake on the other side where the devil is. So this guy was no, you know, he was no friend to people of faith and he was no friend to the Freemasons either. So it was pretty funny. And it just goes to show that so many things throughout history are nuanced. They're not just black and white, good and evil, simply, uh, simply defined. You know what I mean? Everything, we want the simplest, the simplest answers in our society. We want the simplest answers. And of course, we want our side to be correct and the other side to be wrong. We want to think we're good, all good. They're all evil. It, it makes things simple for us because we don't want to have to think about things being um, intricate and that we might have to actually put thought into how to handle certain situations or even how we want or need to think about certain situations. So you got Leo Taxel there. I think that's an important lesson to be learned. And you have the, I will also get into when we do the third episode on Freemasonry here in a couple weeks, I'm going to get into Albert Pike's Three World Wars, which also seem to be a lie of Taxel or that he actually wrote or had something to do with. Now, not that those predictions have, haven't come true because they've been fairly accurate, but like I said early on, I don't believe that Pike actually wrote those. And you can see that this Taxel guy had quite the imagination. So we'll get into that and uh, we'll kind of parse it out and see what we can find out about that but I just wanted to get this Taxel thing out of the way because like I said earlier that quote by Pike is I've seen it referenced in so many articles and so many books and it really gets on my nerves that these otherwise very intelligent authors and researchers can't do better work put a little bit more research into the research on Pike, you know, uh, to you don't want to put anything out there that's fake because then that makes your whole work less credible. And so that's all I'm trying to do is get to the bottom of things. And I think you guys appreciate that in the long run. So that's what I got to say about that. Well, I think that this is where the great confusion comes in. Uh, America was founded as a Christian nation, but it was also founded as an occult nation. And there have always been two parallel forces here in America. One the Christian, one the occult, dating back into the 1600s. And until you understand that, you can't understand anything going on in the world today. Where did they come from, and what or who exactly do they represent? 
For many, the answers lie in the secret societies. I mean, you can see their influence uh, on the back of the Great Seal of the United States, where in 1782, uh, they put on a pyramid cap by an all-seeing eye with the slogan beneath, Novus Adoro Seclorum, the new secular order of the world. That was in 1782. It was put on the back of the Great Seal of the United States, hidden there until uh, about 1935, when it was taken off the back of the Great Seal of the United States and put on the back of the American dollar bill, where it is today, symbolizing the influence of the secret societies on America. Now, let's look at the Palladianism, which they said was a whole nother sect of Freemasonry that Pike had created that was basically straightly dedicated to Lucifer in these higher degrees. Now, it says here, Palladianism, this is nationaltrust.org, Palladianism was an approach to architecture strongly influenced by the 16th century architect Andrea Palladio, characterized by classical forms, symmetry, and strict proportion. The exteriors of the Palladian buildings were often austere inside. However, elaborate decoration, gilding, and ornamentation created a lavish, opulent environment. Just thought that was interesting because I didn't know what it meant. And now that's a little bit different than the Pleiadians who think they come from a star cluster called Pleiades and navigate other worlds in spaceships through human consciousness. Okay, that's different. But maybe connected? I don't know. The words are somewhat similar. But I just wanted to throw that in there. And just to be clear, I'm not saying that Palladianism isn't or wasn't real, isn't real today. I mean, it's not that far-fetched to think that Pike might have created something even higher than the Scottish Rite. He does talk in Morals and Dogma about how he created, he kind of went through all the rites and revamped them. And I'm going to be talking from quotes that are actually in Morals and Dogma to kind of clear up some things. Now, in my show notes, I am going to include the book called Devil Worship in France, I think it's sacredtext.com has a copy of that online, and you can even buy it on Amazon or probably Thrift Books or one of the other websites. So I, I scanned through it, and I saw Pike's name in there a whole bunch. I saw the name Lucifer in there a whole bunch. It probably would be an interesting book to read, but it sounds like, from what I can tell, that this guy did admit that he made up a lot of this stuff. But then again, you know, you look at the other side where we're constantly told that everything is conspiracy and nothing is true. And then the deeper you look, the more you peel back the onion, the more you find that these secret societies and these secretive groups, such as the Council on Foreign Relations or Freemasonry or Skull and Bones or others, have had a lot of their members who've been very significant in historical events. So I think we should keep everything in mind. And like I said, I just want to get to the truth. You know, they say that Leo Taxel also made up the whole deal about palladism and about the other lodge or the other belief system that Albert Pike set up. And so I was looking into that. There used to be a website, I think it was called Palladian Ride or something like that. 
I can't find it. I thought I'd saved it. But anyway, I think I found something. It's pretty much the same thing, and it's saved on Google Sites. And this is Palladism, Palladian, origin from Latin, Palladius from Greek, Palladios from Pallas, Pallid, Pallas, Athena. Number one, Greek, mythology of or relating to a characteristic of Athena. Number two, of or relating to or characterized by wisdom or study. The new super right. By the late 1800s, Freemasonry had grown so large that it became inefficient and difficult to manage. Its many divisions, rights, and sects lacked a sense of unity and direction. Thus, in an effort to centralize the authority of universal Freemasonry, a new ultra-secret governing body was established on the 20th of September in 1870, according to Occult Theocracy, page 207-208. Now, they say, I believe that in that book, which I have upstairs, that Lady Edith Starr Miller, I believe, is the author of Occult Theocracy, that she also put that quote in her book that we talked about earlier. It says, This represented the first major restructuring of Illuminized Freemasonry. At the center of this creation was Albert Pike, who stated, The blind force of the people is a farce that must be economized and also managed. It must be regulated by intellect. Intellect here is a reference to the Illuminati or the highest adepts of Freemasonry. When all these forces are combined and guided by intellect and regulated by the rule of right and justice, the great revolution prepared for by the ages will begin to march. It is because force is ill-regulated that revolutions prove failures. Morals and Dogma, page 1 and 2. Pike would end up doing more than any other figure of the 19th century to prepare for the way of this great revolution of which he spoke. He was a great student of the Kabbalah and the occult, either Star Miller, page 208, of Occult Theocracy. His literary achievements in this area were numerous, including Ariel, the Sefar H. Debraim, Book of the Word, Legenda Magistralia, Ritual of the New and Reformed Palladian, which I cannot find, and the Ritual of Elect Magnus, and lastly, the Book of Apodno. Now, Pike was placed in power in 1859 when he was elected to the position of Sovereign Grand Commander of the Southern Supreme Council in the 1860s. Giuseppe Mazzini, the Italian revolutionary leader and the worldwide director of Illuminized Freemasonry from 1834 to 1872, established relations with Pike, making him the head of the Illuminati's activities in the United States. Finally, on the 20th of September, 1870, the Constitution was created and it created the new super right and was signed into effect by Pike and Mazzini. That's also from Occult Theocracy. The two founders divided their powers according to the following plan. To Pike, Scottish right, was given dogmatic authority and the title of Sovereign Pontiff of the Universal Freemasonry, which Mazzini, Mithmus, Mizraim right, that's those higher degrees they say are European, held the executive authority with the title of Sovereign Chief of Political Action. Now, I've heard other modern Masons say that the rite of Mizraim is no longer done. And if you find a lodge that is doing that, those rites or that rite, uh, they are not approved by the Grand Lodge. And so you should not go there. Uh, it goes on to say, Pike named the order of the new and reformed Palladian rite. 
Historians describe it as a neo-Gnosticism teaching that the divinity is dual and that Lucifer is the equal of Adonai. It is, in fact, Lucifer who inspires worship of the rite of Freemasonry. Holy See of the dogma for the whole Masonic world was set up at Charleston, South Carolina, the sacred city of the Palladium. Now, I've been right there when we were in Charleston a couple of years ago, and I took some pictures outside, and you can see the cornerstone and several plaques that say Freemasonry and the Scottish Rite, and it's pretty neat. You can tell that they're extremely, extremely old. And there was even this one thing that I took a picture of was like this water pipe kind of a drain and even on the drain it had a picture of the triangle with the eye and uh, I'll try to dig that out and stick that on my Instagram or maybe even make it the uh, picture for the next pod for this podcast actually. So Pike the sovereign pontiff of Lucifer was the president of the supreme dogmatic directory composed of 10 brothers of the highest grades who formed his supreme grand council College of Emeritus Masons. The sovereign executive director of High Masonry was established at Rome under Mazzini himself. In a letter to Albert Pike dated the 22nd of January, 1870, leading up to the founding of the New Rite, Mazzini wrote, We must allow all the federations to continue just as they are, with their systems, their central authorities, and their diverse modes of correspondence between high grades of the same Rite organized as they are at present, but we must create a supreme right which will remain unknown to which we will call those Masons of the high degrees whom we shall select. With regard to their brothers in Masonry, these men must be pledged to the strictest secrecy. Through this supreme right, we will govern all Freemasonry, which will become the one international center, the more powerful because its directions will be unknown. Now keep in mind, supposedly all of this is not true as well that Mazzini and Pike didn't have this correspondence which I kind of suspect they actually did because it's obvious that there was a change and that Pike went through the degrees and rearranged them all and it's obvious that the Scottish Rite is the big daddy of Freemasonry with the house of the temple right down from the White House the main centers of operation for the Supreme Palladian Rite were located in Charleston Rome, and Berlin. In addition to these headquarters, Pike and Mazzini established the four grand central directories for the purpose of gathering information vital to political propaganda efforts. These were the grand central directories of North America at Washington, South America at Montevideo, for Europe at Naples, and for Asia and Oceania at Calcutta. Later on, a subdirectory for Africa was rounded at Port Louis on the island of Mauritius. Palladism is necessarily a Luciferian rite. Its religion is Neo-Gnosticism, teaching that the divinity is dual and that Satan or Lucifer is equal of Jehovah or Adonai with the God of light and goodness struggling for humanity against the God of darkness and evil. To recruit adepts, they planned to use some members of other rites, but in the beginning, they meant to rely principally on those among the initiates of the ancient and accepted Scottish rite and Memphis and Mizraim rite, who were already addicted to occultism. A high-degree mason, particularly, would be well-received everywhere in any country, in any rite, the existence of which is acknowledged. Thus, it was particularly the initiates of the high-degree degrees, ancient and primitive rite of Memphis, Mizraim, and Scottish rites, 
who, owing their extensive international ramifications, were privileged to recruit adepts for paladism. That is why the Supreme Right creates its triangles, the name given to Palladian lodges, by degrees. But these were established on a firm base, the lowliest of its initiates being brothers long tested in ordinary Freemasonry. Paladism had been brought to Greece from Egypt by Pythagoras in the 5th century, and it was this cult that was introduced to the inner circle of the Masonic lodges. The name Palladium was taken from a Masonic order founded in 1720, which died out only to reemerge in Charleston under Pike. The Order of the Palladium, or Sovereign Council of Wisdom, had been constituted in France in 1737 and was one and the same as the legendary Palladium of the Templars, better known by the name of Baphomet. In 1801, Isaac Long, a Jew, was said to have carried the original image of Baphomet to Charleston in the United States, and it was alleged that the lodge he founded then became the chief in the ancient and accepted Scottish Rite. He was succeeded in due course by Albert Pike, who was alleged extended the Scottish Rite and shared the anti-Catholic Masonic chieftainship with the Italian patriot Giuseppe Mazzini. This new directory was established. It was asserted as the new Reformed Palladium Rite, or Reformed Palladium, assisted by Gallatin Mackey and others, Pike built the new rite into an occult fraternity with worldwide powers. In 1870, Pike and Mazzini completed an agreement to create a supreme universal rite of masonry that would overarch all the other rites, even the different national rites. It centralized all the high masonic bodies in the world under one head. To this end, the Palladium Rite was created as the pinnacle of the Pyramid of Power, Albert Pike rewrote the degrees of the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry and instituted the Rite of the Palladium to dominate Freemasonry. Pike was said to be indulged in the occult. He was the Grand Master of a group known as the Order of the Palladium, or Sovereign Council of Wisdom, which had been founded in Paris in 1737. The highest of the high was the Palladium, an international alliance to bring in the Grand Lodges, the Grand Orient, 33 degrees of the ancient and accepted Scottish Rite, and the 99 degrees of the ancient and primitive rite, or Memphis and Mizraim. Paladism took the fuel from Adam Weishaupt's vision for humanity and connected the energy to the pistons of Freemasonry. Those pistons were then driven in rhythm by the Palladium. Candidates are exposed to a five-step program. One, adoption. Two, illumination. Three, conversation. Four, congress. And five, union. Modern Illuminati incorporated Memphis Mizraim Freemasonry in their most important, highly secret rite called the Palladium Rite. Pike created a Palladium Rite, which was a secret rite that practiced occultism. This rite was to be kept secret at all costs, and only a chosen few were selected. The Palladium would be an international alliance of key masons. Albert Pike created a super-secret, very powerful group within a group called the Palladium Rite. This rite combined the Grand Lodges, Grand Orient, and all 99 degrees of Memphis Mizraim, a 33 degree of Scottish rite. Therefore, high-level Freemasonry contains the entire practice of Memphis Mizraim and totally controls separate modern-day Masonic lodges. Of course, this is denied by Freemasons, but it would kind of make sense because Pike did go through the degrees and change them, and then... At some point, the rites of Memphis and Mizraim 
supposedly disappeared or died out. I know there's a book, The Rights of Memphis Mizraim, that you can buy, but I don't know if that really tells us anything if we're not completely familiar with all the different rites and rituals of the Scottish Rite. And like I said, I will put the link to this in my show notes. If you're interested in it, there's a ton of other information on this website about palladism or the Palladium Rite. Uh, I'll finish out here from what it says here. Members of the Illuminist Palladium Rite, who incorporated all of the degrees of the Memphis Mizraim, are obsessed with esoteric and occult. Foster Bailey calls the spirit that Masons communicate with the Illuminati. These spirits initiate higher Masons into becoming light bearers themselves. The Illuminati assist at the unfolding of the consciousness of the candidate until the time comes when he can enter to the light and in his turn become a light bearer, one of the Illuminati who can assist the Lodge on high in bringing humanity to light. These spirits have various Masons, higher Masons become Illuminati, which go by several names, one of which is Masters of the Temple. A single illumined person is called an Illuminatus. The Palladium Rite calls its groups triangles of adepts. Members are selected mainly from higher level of the Scottish Rite in Memphis and Mizraim, although the members can come from other rites too. The Palladium Rite has its own budget. Its power over the Masonic Lodge does not derive from being part of a power structure, but from the careful selection of Masons that participate in the Palladium Rite, in their distribution throughout the various rites of Masonry and their controlling bodies, the Grand Central Directories, and from there to the Supreme Councils, Grand Encampments, Grand Orients, and Grand Lodges are the nerve centers of Masonry from which orders emanate. The Palladium Rite is a popular one among those in positions of power. It is said that the leaders of the Palladium Rite are allowed to visit or join the Benai Birth Lodges. And that's a whole other story right there. Now I looked at Morals and Dogma to see if I could find the word Palladium or Palladism in there, and I could not. The only thing that I could find the closest thing to that was the name Palladius, and that was it. So it's not in Morals and Dogma, and it wouldn't be, I'm sure, if it was hidden, or if it was fake, it wouldn't be in there either. So, you know, just to get that out of the way. But Pike did write other books, and they claimed that he wrote a book on it, which I cannot find. And I hope this doesn't get too confusing, but going back to the quote that supposedly Leo Taxel wrote about Lucifer and Adonai, where supposedly, again, Pike said that there were secrets only revealed to the 30th, 31st, and 32nd degrees. So in Morals and Dogma, he does say something about hiding things from the lower level degrees. To quote Albert Pike, the blue degrees are but the outer court or portico of the temple. Part of the symbols are displayed there to the initiate, but he is intentionally misled by false interpretations. It is not intended that he shall understand them, but it is intended that he shall imagine he understands them. Their true explication is reserved for the adepts, the princes of masonry. He says plainly, the whole body of the royal and sacerdotal art was hidden so carefully centuries since in the high degrees as that it is even yet impossible to solve many of the enigmas which they contain. It is well enough for the mass of those called Masons to imagine that all is contained in the blue degrees, and whose attempts to undeceive them 
will labor in vain and without any true reward violate his obligations as an adept. Masonry is the veritable sphinx buried to the head in the sands heaped round it by the ages. Well, there you have the proof that that part is true anyway, that they do hide things from the lower degrees, and that only makes sense. And many people say that those last three to four degrees, depending if you get chosen as a 33rd, that really do, that's when they reveal the more hidden occult meaning and kind of tell you, a lot of these things we've been saying, well, that's not true. This is the real deal right here. So anyway, another note about the most famous Albert Pike quote, and many of you guys are familiar with this one too. This is the other famous Lucifer quote. And many of you will know that quote, but I want to read just a little bit before the quote because it's very important to take everything into context. You know, people pick out a certain Bible quote and they can twist it any way they want if you don't know the context. They can pick out any little news piece, anything, and take it out of context and twist it. And like I said, my main concern is finding out history and finding out the truth, even if I don't like it. So let's look at the paragraph before the famous quote, or maybe two paragraphs before. Let's see here. He's talking about a book called The Apocalypse. Now, I've read more about that in other books about Freemasonry, and apparently this was a very rare book about the occult. He says, The Apocalypse, that sublime, cabalistic, and prophetic summary of all the occult figures, divides its images into three septenaries. That's three sevens. After each of these, there is silence in heaven. There are seven seals to be opened, that is to say, seven mysteries to know and seven difficulties to overcome, seven trumpets to sound and seven cups to empty. And now here's the quote. The apocalypse is, to those who receive the 19th degree, the apotheosis of that sublime faith which aspires to God alone and despises all the pomps and works of Lucifer. Understand it says despises all the pomps and works of Lucifer. Lucifer, the light bearer, strange and mysterious name to give to the spirit of darkness. Lucifer, the son of the morning, is it he who bears the light and with its splendors intolerable, blinds feeble, sensual, or selfish souls? Question mark. Doubt it not. For traditions are full of divine revelations and inspirations, and inspiration is not of one age nor of one creed. Plato and Philo also were inspired. And then he says, The Apocalypse, indeed, is a book as obscure as the Zohar. And he goes on to talk about that book and how it's written hieroglyphically with numbers and images. So I think it's important to Actually, look at what he said instead of jump to a conclusion because he says Lucifer in there, which I used to do. I've always done that until recently when I realized, wait a minute, let's take this into context. So that aside, that quote, right, that was plagiarized from the occult writer Eliphas Levi from his book, The History of Magic. And I've got that right here, and I'm going to read it to you. Now, I want to also take this quote from Eliphas Levi into some kind of context. Like I said, it's on page 36 from The History of Magic. 
He says, scientifically probable hypotheses are one and all the last half-lights or shadows of science. Faith begins where reason falls exhausted. Beyond human reason, there is that reason which is divine. For my weakness, a supreme absurdity, but an infinite absurdity which confounds me and in which I believe. The good alone is infinite, evil is not, and hence if God be the eternal object of faith, then the devil belongs to science. In which of the Catholic creeds is there any question concerning him? Would it not be blasphemy to say that we believe in him? In Holy Scripture, he is named but not defined. Genesis makes no allusion to a reputed revolt of angels. It ascribes the fall of Adam to the serpent as to the most subtle of the dangerous of living beings. We are acquainted with Christian tradition on this subject, but if that tradition is explicable by one of the greatest and most diffused allegories of science, what can such solution signify to the faith which aspires only to God, which despises, here we go, which despises the pomps and the works of Lucifer, question mark. Lucifer, light bearer, how strange a name attributed to the spirit of darkness. Is it he who carries the light and yet blinds feeble souls? The answer is yes, unquestionably, for traditions are full of divine disclosures and inspirations. Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light, says St. Paul, and Christ himself said, I beheld Satan as lightning falling from heaven. Also the prophet Isaiah says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Then Lucifer is then a fallen star, a meteor, which is on fire always, and which burns when it enlightens no longer. But is this Lucifer a person or a force, an angel or a strayed thunderbolt? Tradition supposes that it is an angel, but the psalmist says, Who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flaming fire. And we could all, you know, we could go deeper into that. But you see that he says, which despises the pomps and works of Lucifer. Lucifer the light bearer. How strange a name attributed to the spirit of darkness. Is it he who carries the light and yet blinds feeble souls? The answer is yes, unquestionably. For traditions are full of divine disclosures and inspirations. So there you have it. He absolutely plagiarized Eliphas Levi. And if you look into Albert Pike and plagiarism, then you see that this is not the only instance. So if you didn't know about this, here you go. I thought it was pretty interesting. And while we're on Mr. Albert Pike, who is such an important part of Freemasonry, and I hope you guys are not getting bored with this, I'm going to do several, several episodes on Freemasonry because it's such a, well, it's the mother of all conspiracies, right? But there's so many misconceptions, and I also think if I keep digging, I keep finding new things that I didn't know. And a lot of things people just say and only know just a little bit about it, and then it starts a legend. But in Morals and Dogma, in the part where it says, Grand Master of All Symbolic Lodges, if you forward down, he's talking about the degrees and the influence of the degrees on Freemasonry and what happened before, I guess, before he redid the degrees for the Scottish Rite. He says, innovators and inventors overturned that primitive simplicity. 
ignorance engaged in the work of making degrees, and trifles and gewgaws and pretended mysteries, absurd or hideous, usurp the place of Masonic truth. The picture of the horrid vengeance, the poniard of the bloody head, appeared in the peaceful temple of masonry without sufficient explanation of their symbolic meaning. Oaths out of all proportion with their object shocked the candidate and then became ridiculous and were wholly disregarded. Alkalites were exposed to tests and then compelled to perform acts, which, if real, would have been abominable, but being mere chimeras were preposterous and excited contempt and laughter only. Eight hundred degrees of one kind or another were invented. Infidelity and even Jesuitry were taught under the mask of masonry. The rituals even of the respectable degrees, copied and mutilated by ignorant men, became nonsensical and trivial, and words so corrupted that it has hitherto been found impossible to recover many of them at all. Candidates were made to degrade themselves and to submit to insults not tolerable to a man of spirit and honor. Hence, it was that practically the largest portion of the degrees claimed by the ancient and accepted Scottish rite, and before it the rite of perfection fell into disuse, were merely communicated and their rituals became jejune and insignificant. These rites resembled those old palaces and barren castles, the different parts of which built at different periods, remote from one another, upon plans and according to tastes that greatly varied, formed a discordant and incongruous whole. Judaism and chivalry, superstition and philosophy, philanthropy and insane hatred and longing for vengeance, and a pure morality and unjust and illegal revenge were found strangely mated and standing hand in hand within the temples of peace and concord. And the whole system was one grotesque commingling of incongruous things, of contrasts and contradictions, of shocking and fantastic extravagances, of parts repugnant to good taste and fine conceptions overlaid and disfigured by absurdities engendered by ignorance, fanaticism, and senseless mysticism, an empty and sterile pomp, impossible indeed to be carried out, and to which no meaning whatever was attached, with far-fetched explanations that were either so many stupid platitudes or themselves needed an interpreter, lofty ideas arbitrarily assumed and to which the inventors had not condescended to attach any explanation that should acquit them of the folly of assuming temporal rank power, and titles of nobility made the world laugh and the initiate feel ashamed. Some of these titles we retain, but they have with us meanings entirely consistent with the spirit of equality, which is the foundation and the preemptory law of its being of all masonry. So I won't keep going because he just drones on and on, basically says the same thing over and over again. Uh, he likes to think of himself as waxing eloquently, I'm sure, or he did like to think that. But uh, anyway, so it's kind of interesting because I'd never really heard much about that and how basically the Scottish Rite or even Pike was the one to take all that mess of confusion and kind of put it into the Scottish Rite. Because if you talk to people from the Blue Lodges, they just think that the Scottish Rite and the York Rite has no meaning whatsoever. It's just symbolic. But obviously there's a lot more to it. And I think it's very interesting that there's so much confusion. No wonder they can't trace back a lot of their lineage or the origins of their rights. 
Although depending on which author you read, they do, some do try to take it back and act as if they know exactly what happened. The book Bloodline of the Holy Grail, I think it's Lawrence Gardner who wrote that book. And this guy acts just like he knows everything, every little detail that, you know, dating way back thousands of years ago related to Freemasonry. And I just think that's crazy because if you read other Freemasonic scholars, they say plainly that they didn't know a lot of these things. So there's such a, you know, a, such a contradiction in information out there. But before we get off the Albert Pike subject, I wanted to talk about something that's obviously very controversial, but the name Lucifer. You know, we're talking about Lucifer and the, the two quotes where, you know, one, supposedly Pike did not say, and then the other one, I told you and explained that he ripped that off from Eliphas Levi. So what did Pike say about Lucifer in Morals and Dogma. So I looked that up because, you know, I want to get to the bottom of the truth. And Lucifer is mentioned several times in Morals and Dogma, but nothing under the, you know, subject of worshiping Lucifer. He says in one part of it, and again, you have to, I invite you to go ahead and get that copy, uh, a copy of it. Like I said, it's free on Amazon Kindle if you want to get it there. You can download a free PDF or other form on archive.org. But he says here, the true name of Satan, the Kabbalists say, is that of Yahweh reversed. For Satan is not a black god, but the negation of God. The devil is the personification of atheism or idolatry. For the initiates, this is not a person, but a force. And I'll stop right there for a second and say we were reading about the Lucifer spirits from the Rosicrucian Max Heindel from his book Freemasonry and Catholicism. He kept talking about the Lucifer spirits and how the Lucifer spirits through the archangel, the fallen angel Samael, impregnated Eve, and she bore Cain as his son. And I'm not saying I believe that, but I'm just saying that's what they were trying to say. That's what he was trying to say. So anyway, Pike goes on to say about Lucifer. For the initiates, this is not a person, but a force created for good, but which may serve for evil. It is the instrument of liberty or free will. They represent this force, which presides over the physical generation under the mythologic and horned form of the god Pan. Thence came the he-goat of the Sabbath, brother of the ancient serpent, and the light-bearer or phosphor of which the poets have made the false Lucifer of the legend. Okay, so he's talking about Lucifer and how all this legend's been made about Lucifer, and he's now equated as Satan, the devil, right? But there is some controversy about that, even among Christians. And I've heard the author Gary Wayne explain that very well. He's done, I think, two podcasts on that where he talks about nothing but the origins of the name Lucifer and how we got to that and everything, and the difference between Lucifer and the devil. So this is BibleQ.net, and it says, where did the term Lucifer come from? Lucifer is a Latin adjective meaning light bringer. 
It was used of both the moon and more frequently of the planet Venus, the morning star, the brightest object in the sky just before dawn. This is early in Christian usage. The word became used as a name widely from the Latin of 2 Peter 1 and 9, Lucifer, Oriator in Cordibus Vestris, the morning star arise in your hearts. This was taken as a title of Christ and features in early hymns such as that by 4th century Bishop Hilary of Portiers with the line, Tu versus Mundi Lucifer, you are the true light bringer of the world. At the, time, at the same time, Lucifer became a popular Christian name, including of two early bishops. Now, I do remember reading something about a bishop named Lucifer a while back, and it blew my mind. Of course, I jumped all kinds of conclusions, but that was before I had this information here. It says, later Christian usage. A sudden change in the associations of the name came about in the 5th century with increasing reference to another morning star, Latin Lucifer, in the Latin Bible, namely the King of Babylon, in Isaiah 14, 12. I'll see if I can... Uh, actually pronounce this Latin, Quomodo sesedisti de Caelo Lucifer file aurore. This literally is how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. And from the context has nothing to do with angels. Isaiah 14, 16 through 17 calls him a man. However, it came to be used as a verse about the devil, and the original usage from 2 Peter 1.19 was largely forgotten. In English Bibles, the word was traditionally left untranslated as a name of the devil. Lucifer, that risedest, early how fellest thou down from heaven. That's the Wycliffe Bible from 1390, and that was pre-King James Version. The King James Version is, how art thou Fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Now I'll read the Wycliffe version one more time. Lucifer, that risedest early, how fellest thou down from heaven? In the King James, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? This is modern versions. Now the clock has turned back again to the early Christian understanding of these verses, and modern versions translate the word as morning star in both Isaiah 14 and 2 Peter 1. The comparison to Venus is quite suitable. The king of Babylon was very proud and imagined himself to be a god. He said, I will make myself like the Most High, Isaiah 14, 14, and apparently thought of himself as being in heaven like Venus. Instead, he fell to earth in defeat. Isaiah describes him as a metaphorical morning star, appearing bright and elevated, but about to plunge below the horizon and disappear. A similar passage in Ezekiel 28, which is about the king of Tyre, although it is also often incorrectly interpreted as applying to a wicked angel. That's just another reference. And the king of Tyre, actually in Freemasonic lore, was supposed to be the one that King Solomon called, or not called, but he messaged, he sent a message to him to send Hiram Abiff, this grand mighty architect, to come help him build his temple. And that's just an aside, but I thought that was very interesting. Now, I'm not telling you what to believe about the term Lucifer. You do your own research, do your own research on all this stuff. 
and make up your own mind. I'm never telling you exactly what to believe. This is just me looking at information and giving it to you guys and do with it what you will. Uh, also mentioned in there that I really said a lot in uh, talking about Lucifer, but uh, when uh, Pike was talking about Lucifer, he says, for the initiate, this is not a person but a force created for good, but which may serve for evil. It is the instrument of liberty or free will. Well, that must be right there where, you know, uh, do what thou will shall be the whole of the law, where Crowley got that equating free will with Lucifer, which is also stupid to me because if Lucifer doesn't exist, he's not really even a person or a, a angel, then your free will is not going to represent Lucifer, except if you're into this dark art stuff. But anyway, that aside, another thing is I've read in the past, I think it was called asktherabbi.com. I'll have to look that up. It's been, I'm talking four or five years since I read this. But I do remember reading that a rabbi, they ask the rabbi how Orthodox Jews look at the devil. And they, he said in there that they do not rep, you know, view the devil as a person, but more like a spirit, kind of basically the way Pike is describing this. And, of course, <clears throat> Orthodox Jews study the Kabbalah, and Pike and many of the other Freemasonic writers talk a lot about how Freemasonry has a lot of Kabbalah in it, or a lot of influence. So that just makes sense. And I remember the rabbi even said in the article, and I'll see if I can find it and put it in, in my show notes, but it, like I said, it's been a long time. But he said that devil can even be looked at as a friend because, you know, when you do something bad, then something bad happens to you. Karma or whatever. They don't say karma, but then you learn a lesson from making bad decisions. So I just wanted to put that in there and add that to this whole thing because it fit in there perfectly. Some personalized their identification with Lucifer, such as Shriner Bob Rosland here. Now, did you just say that you are Lucifer? I am Lucifer. Okay, define Lucifer for me. Pure, virtuous, wholesome, innocent individual that's out to help people. Lucifer is? Yeah. Luc say that again. Lucifer is a pure, holy... Virtuous. Virtuous. Now, is he the Lucifer that God created? That's the same one. Oh, man, this is great. I'm going to put this on the Internet. Oh, Amen. God bless you, Amen. brother. Now, as one more aside before we end this episode... There's a couple more terms that came out of Freemasonry that came to my attention. The term third degree, you're giving me the third degree. I've read in several books now that that came out of Freemasonry, which makes sense. Also, the term, and when I say this, it's going to make total sense as well, journeyman. Journeyman, like you're studying to be uh, an electrician, a journeyman. So that came out of Freemasonry as well. Now here is something that I did not realize. When we hear Freemasonry lodges or a Freemasonry lodge, we just think about, you know, it's kind of like their church, right? It's their house of the temple. Well, the original reason they called it a lodge was because not only did they meet there and have their, you know, their, their meetings and their, do their rituals and all that stuff. And everything back in the day, of course, 
was even more hidden than it is today. But Freemasons had to do things under the radar, right? Because they would be called witches or, you know, people would say that they're into black magic or something because they mix all these different religions together and do some pretty weird stuff. But, um, or weird stuff to the normal lay person, right? Putting these costumes on and, and memorizing all this stuff and, and talking about all this lore. It's, it's pretty odd to a regular person. But that aside, so when a Mason was running from something, perhaps could have been running from the law, it could have been running from the church, it could have been running from angry in-laws, it could have been running from anything, right? He would need a place to go, a place to stay in the next town or two towns over, what have you. And so he would need lodging for the night. And so according to John J. Robinson, or Robeson, excuse me, uh, the guy that wrote Born in Blood, they had that term lodge because he would go to another lodge, be taken in, sometimes given food, sometimes given water, sometimes given money even, and always given shelter. So one mason could go from one town to five towns over. He could go to another country if he had the means and be taken in and given lodging for the night or for several nights if need be, maybe even given money. So it all goes back to the oaths that they make towards one another. And we can get into, and we'll do that in the next episode that I do about Freemasonry, we'll get into the oaths and the good and bad about making oaths in secret societies. I think we can all imagine making a promise to a friend is of course, not a bad thing, but if you make these oaths, and in the in the back in the day it was blood oaths. Now some say that it's no longer blood oaths. I don't know. I can't prove it one way or another. But making these oaths to someone to no matter what, no matter what, even in terms of murder, you will hold them up, lie for them, stand by them, whatever it takes. You can see how that could be pretty dangerous thing but there's a good and a downside to everything right so we'll get more into that we'll get into how that looks or could look in the court system into politics Uh, we'll just talk about all kinds of other stuff because this is such again it's such a nuanced subject with such a long history i don't know i think this has been a lot of fun i'm learning with you guys i hope you're having fun with this I wanted to get deeper into the Freemason lore, history, mythos, teachings than other podcasts that I've listened to in the past. And I've listened to some good ones, no doubt. But I wanted to kind of take it to a whole nother level for people who are not Masons and hopefully get them interested in looking into secret societies and possibly how they may uh, how they may fit into our world, especially into politics, into the history of the founding of this country, other countries, in the French Revolution, and you know, we talked a little bit about the Illuminati. I mean, there's just so many avenues to go to, and I hope that I didn't uh, focus too much on the Jesuits. I think I did the first episode of Focus a little too much on the Jesuits. 
And one of these days, like I said, we will do a show on the Jesuits and it'll be a barn burner. But I really wanted to focus on Freemasonry. And so it's that time. Thank you so much for listening to me. Once again, putting up with me. I hope you have a great week. Send me some feedback if you like this episode. Give me some stars, some recommendations maybe. I don't ask for much, guys. I hate to be one of those guys, you know, give me a review, give me some stars, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, you know, if you want people to listen to this, you want this information to get out and you want me to keep doing it, I'm going to do it as long as I can. And I just really appreciate your uh, support in any way that you've given it, whether it's just listening, whether it's sending me information, asking me questions, uh, whatever it is, whether it's sharing my show, sharing my Instagram, whatever. So thank you guys. I will see you soon, and I have another another part two episode about the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations. It's done. I'm just going to do a little editing, and then it'll be out there to you guys. And it tells even more than we've learned so far, of course, and I've probably got at least one more episode on them eventually. Uh, I'd like to get into how many... Council on Foreign Relation members have been in each presidential administration. It's going to blow your mind. But this next episode has a lot more history than we've learned so far, and I think that you guys will really appreciate it. So, I'll shut up now. I just want to thank you again. Cheers and blessings, my friends.